Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, returning to foreign interference. About the money that the foundation received for the specific purpose of influencing the prime minister. Parliament is back after a two-week break and the issue of China's attempt to interfere with Canadian elections is still top of mind. Coming up, we'll speak to two journalists about the questions and the controversy that still remain. And we'll speak to three MPs who have just returned from Taiwan. What can Canada learn about dealing with the People's Republic from that island state? Also. This government has said they believe in workers. Well, if that's true, come to the table and demonstrate that. PSAC gives the government until tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern time to meet their demands or face a possible public sector strike. Coming up, we'll speak with the union's national president. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Well, it is back to business for Parliament after a two-week break, but that time away has done little to quiet the uproar over foreign interference in Canada. Today, it was the money given to the Trudeau Foundation, ostensibly by two Chinese businessmen, that led off question period in the House of Commons. The opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, calling on the Prime Minister's brother to appear before a Commons committee because he was involved in accepting that $140,000 for the foundation. Well, it's definitely a family business for this Prime Minister, whether it was the Wee Charity paying his brother and mother money, the Prime Minister claiming to know nothing about it as he handed a half billion dollars over to that organization, or the Trudeau Foundation, which got $140,000 from the dictatorship in Beijing for the specific purpose of influencing his decisions in politics. But now we know that his brother, his own brother was the one that negotiated and signed the deal to receive the money. Will the Prime Minister accept to call his brother to a parliamentary committee to answer questions about this? The Honourable Government House Leader. The Leader of the Opposition knows well that the Prime Minister has not been involved with that foundation uh, for approximately a decade, uh, that his fixation with uh, the Prime Minister's family is well known for its partisan interests. Uh, and that he wishes to pursue those partisan interests, Mr. Speaker. But the Prime Minister and the government is not engaged with that foundation. Well, with more on all of this, we're now joined by Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for The Globe and Mail, and Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for The Canadian Press. Good to see both of you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Bob, I'll begin with you here, uh, because obviously uh, where the primary issue still is China interference and how the government responded to, to those allegations, uh, there are principal fallouts, uh, primarily, as we just saw there, the, the Trudeau Foundation. It's an organization dedicated to academic research, but was Beijing trying to buy access with that donation to the Trudeau Foundation? Well, look, when, they, when we first reported about this in 2016, that this billionaire showed up at a cash for access fundraiser at a private home where Trudeau uh, was a guest of honor, and then a month later, there's $200,000 to the Trudeau Foundation and 700, well, 800,000 really to the University of Montreal Law School and the honor of Mr. Uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Mm -hmm. It was clear then that it was some kind of an influence operation. This guy appears out of nowhere and starts doling out money. But we didn't really know this until we were, uh, a national security official told us that back in 2014, 
they captured a conversation between the Chinese billionaire and a un, an unnamed uh, commercial attaché at a Chinese consulate saying, look, there's a chance Trudeau may win. Um, you give him, a, give him a million dollars and we'll reimburse you. So that's the backdrop of this story. And, and this is not unusual. This is the modus operandi that China uses all over the world. May not work, uh, but they think it does or they think it's a one method. So it was a, it was a, an, uh, it's another example of how China tries to use, um, tries to influence or interfere in, in democracies. Um, so that's the bottom line with that. Yeah, and it certainly continues to, to open up uh, the, the Trudeau government to question. Although, as we heard there, Joanna, from Mark Holland, the, the prime minister has had no involvement with the foundation for about 10 years now. But does that matter if you have a family member still a part of the board? I think they're in a in a weird situation where there's this foundation that bears his family name, right? So just on the face of it, for anyone not following all the ins and outs really closely, you think, how could there not be a conflict of interest? And then you learn about other members being on the board. I mean, this was set up to honor his father. We're sort of in a unique situation in Canada where we now have the son of a former prime minister who's also the prime minister. There were, there was some murkiness near the beginning about exactly when his involvement ended. There, you know, government house leader Mark Holland is being a, li a little bit more clear cut than I think we remember um, it being at the time. There was a bit of overlap. Um, and I think if the issue was just the foundation bears the name, that would be one thing that's been true for a very long time. Um, but loading in this highly suspect donation and the very strange response to it, the board is clearly in disarray, clearly trying to figure out, scrambling, trying to figure out how to respond to that. If everything else was fine, I think that would be an easy thing to explain away, but clearly things are not fine and this adds to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have issues, really fishy issues. Um, the public report of the donation listed the two men as giving the money, but the tax receipt, according to the documents we've seen, are not for these two men. Uh, it's for a corporation that they uh, are shareholders or directors of. And the first receipt goes to a Hong Kong place, which, by the way, is a shell, which is, sets up shell companies. And then there is a note in the file saying, no, no, from a state-affiliated uh, association saying, no, no, send the money to Beijing, the tax receipt to, to Beijing. What led to all the board resignations is the new president and the new board members saying, this does not smell right. We need to have a forensic audit mm -hmm. uh, and a law Which firm Which is calling for, and now the organization. They did do it, those, but, yeah. but they didn't want, they wanted this to be overlooked by a special committee, not anybody who were there at the time that this happened, and the people who are still on it are Trudeau family friends, and are still uh, are still um, having a say in terms of this, uh, the terms of reference of the of the independent audit uh, that's going to be done by the by the by the foundation. So, uh, I, one thing that's good about this is the Auditor General. Mm -hmm. We all know when the Auditor General comes in, they do good work and will accept the findings, whatever they find. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you know, what's interesting about this, though, too, is the tentacles of the foundation, because as we know, David Johnson appointed special rapporteur, but he has uh, past affiliations with the Trudeau Foundation, as does Morris Rosenberg, who actually wrote the government report on government interference. So, so does that put into question, then, the work that has been done and the work that's currently being done by Johnston to, to get to the bottom of this? What struck me about the Rosenberg thing was when, when we spoke to him about it. One of our reporters asked that direct question, what about this? And what I found really interesting about his response, because he was head of the foundation at the time this donation was received, um, 
he said back in 2016 there was a different relationship with China and you didn't have to necessarily be on guard for these things. I'm paraphrasing him rather bluntly. But that was what I took away from that. And I found, I mean, Morris Rosenberg is a former Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. I found that to be an incredibly surprising and, dare I say, naive um, characterization of relationship with China in 2016. Did the Trudeau government have more optimistic feelings about it? Sure, they were pursuing a few, tra few trade agreement with China. Um, that was before the two Michaels um, debacle. But to suggest that these things didn't need to be scrutinized at the time as heavily because things were different, that was pretty surprising. Um, and so, so, so yeah, there are, there are things to look out for there. Do I think it puts his report into doubt? Um, is there a direct connection between Johnson and, and, and his work here? No, I think that's a bit of a stretch. At the same time, given the Trudeau government was under such intense pressure to get the appointment of the Special Rapporteur right, the fact they couldn't find anyone who didn't have that link um, is surprising, and I think they maybe could have tried a little harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a big country. We could have found somebody who had no link to the Trudeau Foundation, both in investigating Chinese interference in the 2020 election, uh, which is Mr. Rosenberg, and then, of course, uh, David Johnston doing the uh, special rapporteur job. And just may I say a thing, you know, the Trudeau Foundation does excellent work. It provides funding uh, for PhD students to do a lot of work. A lot of it goes to disadvantaged uh, 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 people as well who wouldn't be able to do this. Mm -hmm. So it's good work, but they've got, if, if they want to go forward, it seems to me, they have to get all the liberals and all the Trudeau people off this foundation and get in academics and nonpartisans to carry on what is a really good foundation, but it's become, uh, you know, it's been poisoned by uh, these Chinese interference uh, money, this tainted money, and the fact that, frankly, it's been operating as a, you know, as a, it's, it's very heavily liberal, very heavily true to family, and it's not their money. It's, they didn't put a dime into this foundation. It was you and me, 125 million bucks. Yeah, yeah, which, which makes me wonder, though, because here we are, two weeks, you know, there was a two-week break. We're now back into business. At the end of this five-week run, which is the, the time period until the next break, that is when uh, Johnston is meant to present his, his report to the Prime Minister. Does the timeline change? If it doesn't change, what does it do to the five weeks? And sorry to say, we have uh, 30 seconds for each of you on this one. Well, there's sort of two two deadlines, right? One is to say yes or no to a public inquiry, and then a final report later. I can't help but think that timeline of yes or no to the public inquiry was definitely meant to put that issue to rest in the in the near term. So I think uh, I think that'll play into into the five weeks. Is this something to watch it? And Bob? look, uh, if Johnson does not recommend a public inquiry, I think his credibility is just going to go crashing. It's already been questioned. Uh, I mean, he is a man of, of high integrity, but it, but the fact that he would take on a job in a situation where he had just come off serving on the Trudeau Foundation, you know, he should know better than that. Well, as I said, we are watching very closely. Bob Fife, Joanna Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Well, the clock is now ticking for the federal government. By tomorrow night, if an agreement is not reached with the Public Service Alliance of Canada, more than 100,000 public sector workers will go on strike. Wage hikes and work-from-home agreements remain key sticking points. And today in the House, the federal NDP leader urged government to settle with workers. In the pandemic, public sector workers stepped up and provided the much-needed help to give Canadians a lending hand in a difficult time. Now these workers are being impacted by inflation. 
and they don't want to go to strike. They want to work. So the government has a responsibility to negotiate fairly. So will the government get serious and negotiate a fair contract that respects the public service workers? Here, here. The Honourable Minister. provide important services to Canadians and the government values their work. The government is committed to reaching agreements at the bargaining table that are fair for the employees and reasonable for taxpayers. We have a good offer on the table and there's enough ground to reach a deal. Canadians expect both parties to bargain in good faith and find compromise. And that's what we're doing today, Mr. Speaker. Merci. Well, with more, we're now joined by the union's national president, Chris Aylward. Chris, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure, Michael. So we just heard the minister speaking there. Uh, she's saying the fact that there is enough ground uh, with the offer for the two sides to reach a deal. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, there, there's still quite a bit of ground uh, that we have to make up, uh, especially on the priority key issues, uh, such as wages. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, you know, I mean, we're asking uh, for 13.5% over three years, and uh, currently uh, there's 9%. So, you know, there, there's some room to, uh, to make up uh, there on the wages for sure, uh, and some of the other key priorities uh, as well, and including, of course, the team-specific uh, issues, uh, where we still need uh, some discussion uh, and some uh, resolution on those issues as well. Okay, so work to be done, but here you are as a union setting a deadline for the federal government. Why the decision to do that? Negotiations could continue as public services continue. Why the need for a deadline? We've been at the bargaining table, Michael, for almost two years now. Uh, we uh, you know, made a decision in January of this year after 18 months of being uh, at the bargaining table to take strike votes. Uh, we took those strike votes, of course, and as we announced last week, our members gave us an overwhelming uh, strike mandate. Uh, and once we announced those uh, strike results, as we did last week, we only have 60 days uh, to use that strike vote. Uh, we've, we've been meeting for the last two weeks uh, with uh, the employer uh, at the bargaining table, uh, and things were not moving very quickly. Uh, and every day, every week, that workers uh, are not getting a decent uh, wage in the increase in this country, they're falling further and further behind. Uh, so yes, we made the decision to basically, you know, put a clock on the on, on this round of bargaining, and uh, the government now knows that they have until 9 p.m. tomorrow evening, Tuesday, uh, April 18th, uh, to come to the bargaining table with a deal that that will avoid uh, a strike, and that is what we want. Uh, we do not want to go on strike. Uh, we want to reach a tentative agreement and to avoid a strike and those impacts uh, that Canadians will feel if this government forces us to go on strike. You know, what's interesting is as you you go over the, the primary issues that are still uh, in need of negotiation, wages uh, that you're asking for, yes, reflect the rise in the cost of just about everything, but those kinds of pay increases is exactly what the Bank of Canada is worried about. They, they, they fear that wage increases would essentially make recent inflationary prices permanent. So, so how do you respond to that concern? Well, look, I mean, as, as, as I, we've been saying, Workers right across this country, whether they're uh, unionized workers, non-unionized, private sector, public sector workers, every worker in this country deserves a fair and decent uh, wage increase. Uh, so, and, and you know, what are we supposed to do in, in the face of inflation? We, we just keep falling further and further behind and, and take on more and more debt. 
ju just to get by, uh, that that's that's not acceptable. Uh, you know, this the, the the government, the federal government, being the largest employer in this country, uh, when they repress wages on their own uh, workers, what they're actually doing is repressing wages for all workers uh, in all sectors. Uh, so, so we want to make sure that you know we get a fair and decent uh, wage increase that at least you know keeps it in line with the rate of inflation. As I said, workers are, are fed up, they're frustrated, and our members are, are no different uh, than every other worker in this country. Uh, they're, they're, they're fed up watching corporations uh, making record profits. Workers in this country didn't cause inflation. We shouldn't have to shoulder uh, that, that burden of, of having to pay for inflation. Bank of Canada says that on one hand, and just last week, the governor of the Bank of Canada came out and finally said, corporate pricing needs to be normalized. So basically what he's finally said is that corporate pricing is not normal right now. And, and we, we agree with that. Uh, you, we're, we're being gouged. While, while these corporations, as I said, make record profits, you go to the gas pump, you're being gouged. You go to the grocery store, you're being gouged. It's got to stop. Workers, workers can't just continue uh, you know, falling further and further and further into debt just to make uh, ends meet. Something got to give. That's why we're calling on the government to come to the table and set that bar for all workers across the country. So 9 p.m. Tuesday night, Eastern Time, is the deadline. You know, quickly running out of time here, Chris, but what happens Wednesday morning if the deadline's not met? When, if the deadline is not met, uh, then Wednesday, April 18th, uh, at 12.01 a.m., uh, there will be 155,000 uh, federal public sector workers on strike uh, in the country. It will be a national general strike. So walking off the job. Correct. Chris Elward, uh, thank you for the time. Maybe we'll be speaking Wednesday. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Let's take a look now at the other stories making headlines today. We are going to continue to be extremely vigilant around ensuring that they continue to be worthy of the trust that millions of Canadians put in them. Federal funding is returning to Hockey Canada, with Ottawa saying the organization made the changes needed for money to start flowing once again. Funding had been frozen since last year over the handling of sexual assault allegations. That includes the settlement with a woman who says she was assaulted by members of the 2018 World Junior Team. If a leak can go unreported for 10 months at Curl, what is happening elsewhere? We need a credible, viable audit of every tail and spawns in order to restore basic trust. That's Chief Alam Adam of the Athabascan Chippewan First Nation telling MPs he wants more federal action after being in the dark for months about an oil sand spill near his Alberta community. Chief Adam says people remain anxious about their health and angry with Imperial Oil and provincial regulators. The federal government did announce today that Indigenous leaders will help lead the effort to improve emergency reporting. And several former Conservative and Liberal ministers say Canada needs more urgency on national defence and security. They have signed an open letter with more than 50 others that includes former Chiefs of Defence staff, former Ambassadors and the former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. They want the government to speed up procurement, fix military gaps and boost spending. 
Well, let's get back to the issue of China interference. Recently, a group of 10 MPs traveled to Taiwan where they met with local officials. Taiwan asserts its independence, but Beijing insists it is a part of the People's Republic of China. And as a result, Taiwan battles Chinese interference and the threat of it on a daily basis. An interesting reality considering what is happening in this country right now. Well, with more on their visit to Taiwan, we're now joined by the Liberal MP for Scarborough Guildwood in Toronto, John McKay. He's also the chair of the Parliamentary Committee on National Defence. Michael Chong is Conservative MP for the riding of Wellington Halton Hills in Ontario, also the vice chair of the Special Committee on Canada and the People's Republic. And Lindsay Matheson is the NDP's deputy house leader and the MP for the riding of London Fanshawe. Hello to the three of you. Michael. Uh, Mr. Michael. Hi there. Mr. McKay, I'll get you to start us off here because obviously uh, Canada-China relations not at a high point currently. Uh, were you at all concerned that your presence in Taiwan would further strain the relationship between Beijing and Ottawa? Not really. Um, you know, Beijing has kidnapped our citizens. Beijing runs influence operations in our universities. Beijing uh, runs uh, intimidation operations in police stations. Uh, they uh, regularly steal all kinds of intellectual property, um, run balloons over our airspace, put uh, boys in um, our oceans. Um, so, no, I was not concerned about what Beijing uh, would think. I was far more concerned about uh, uh, expressing some so, uh, some solidarity uh, with the Taiwanese people who are resisting the aggression of Beijing. Um, Beijing wishes to turn us all into vassal states, uh, and um, Taiwan has, over the years, shown its uh, ability to resist uh, the aggression of the uh, PRC. Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Chong, Taiwan's existence is increasingly uh, coming up against China's global and regional ambitions. I'm wondering, as we, we hear that litany of activities from Mr. McKay, uh, was part of this trip aimed at finding out what Taiwan needs to maintain its independence? Yeah, part of this trip was to learn what Canada can do, uh, both to strengthen our own defense and security here at home, and to strengthen the defense and security of other democracies, including Taiwan. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine a year ago proved the need for democracies to work much more closely together in a range of areas from trade and investments to supply chains uh, to defense and security in order to ensure that authoritarian states don't continue to further their aggression. As you know, President Xi of of the People's Republic of China and President Putin of the Russian Federation have signed an autocratic pact promising to back each other up with respect to both Ukraine and Taiwan. And so it's more important than ever that democracies like Canada and Taiwan work more closely together. I might add the final point here. Um, Taiwan is consequential. Taiwan produces over 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors. And what the pandemic proved to all of us is how important semiconductors are in our day-to-day -day lives. The disruption to semiconductor supply chains during the pandemic uh, created havoc in supply chains and consumer products here at home. And so we need to ensure Taiwan's defense and security 
it's vital not just for our principles and values, but it's vital for our economy as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Ms. Matheson, as we talk about uh, relations with Beijing, part of the reason why they are at a low, of course, has to do with foreign interference in Canadian democracy. Uh, Taiwan, as I said right off the bat, deals with Beijing on a daily basis. How important was this visit on that front? Uh, it was absolutely uh, vital, actually, in, in terms of us being able to, to talk to some of those key officials, uh, those key ministers uh, that have been dealing with this for a lot, uh, a lot longer or in, in far more intense circumstances, uh, for us to learn from them, to listen to them, to, to figure out how we can be a part of, of that uh, greater, stronger partnership. All of that was, was key parts of, of what we went to 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 learn and to achieve and i think that we had um really incredible open conversations um they were uh, the, 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 the officials that we met with were, were very excited uh, by our support, by the report that was presented by the Canada-China um, Parliamentary Committee, um, and, uh, and we made some, some really long-lasting, I think, relationships and, and um, connections mm -hmm. as part of that trip. Mr. McKay, when it comes to lessons learned about foreign interference, what do you think Canada needs to learn from Taiwan? Uh, we have a lot to learn. <laughs> We have a lot to learn on the management of digital uh, information, uh, particularly the uh, cyber attacks that um, are a daily fact of life in Taiwan. I believe the minister said that a million attacks a day. Uh, we have a lot to learn in terms of the coordination of the response to those attacks. We have a lot to learn in terms of um, issues of disclosure of the attacks. Um, so those uh, on the cyber uh, side of it, uh, those are immediate lessons to be learned. Uh, on the misinformation, disinformation side of the equation, uh, the Taiwanese have a unique and interesting way of managing the relentless amount of misinformation and disinformation that comes out of the PRC. And they have a response time largely run by NGOs um, that they target for a two-hour response. In fact, what I'm told is that they generally have a response out within an hour. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chong, what would you answer to that? Because, you know, what's interesting about this visit is the multi-party approach and the, the, the agreement that seems to be emerging out of this, this one trip to Taiwan. Well, I agree with uh, John McKay on the uh, lessons that we can learn from the Taiwanese government. Uh, they are at the forefront of Beijing's meddling, at, right. of Beijing's foreign interference threat activities, whether it comes in the form of cyber attacks, whether it comes in the form of disinformation. Uh, they are at the forefront and have been for years. Uh, it's particularly, uh, it's a particular problem for the Taiwan government because in both Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, Mandarin is the native language. Uh, and so Beijing is relentless in spreading propaganda and disinformation. But one of the interesting things that I learned during the trip uh, was that uh, they have taken a very uh, principled approach to tackling this disinformation. It's based on the values that Canada and Taiwan share, a belief in free expression, free uh, fundamental freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press. And what they've done is taken a very bottom-up approach uh, to instill in Taiwanese society, beginning in the school system, uh, to build a resilience on, on disinformation. 
they have not just media literacy training in their education system, they call it media competency training. So it's not just to instill in citizens the idea that they are consumers of information, but to make them think critically about the type of, in, mis, uh, type of information they are consuming so that they can make their own informed choices about whether information is fact-based or whether it's disinformation. So instead of controlling the social media companies using the course of power of the state from the top down, they instead build resilience from the bottom up. And that, that's one of the important takeaways that I, I gleaned from our trip to Taiwan, and I think those are lessons that could be applied here in Canada. Yeah, Ms. Matheson, last minute to you. What do you hope comes out of this visit? Well, again, I think that this is the, that strengthening of the relationships, uh, the continuing of those conversations. Um, uh, the the uh, the trade talks uh, that I know that uh, the the people in Taiwan want to continue to have uh, with with Canada as part of that uh, larger uh, multilateral community. They want the support uh, that Canada can provide. Uh, they want to be able to engage further uh, in in that um, more larger global uh, conversation. Uh, and so I think that that we can continue to to work on on those relationships and. Uh, uh, again, this was about listening uh, to what the, the people of Taiwan want for Taiwan. And so we, we can continue to support that and, and, and just work on all the things. Uh, we have a lot of actual work to do, as, as Michael uh, had pointed out um, and John had pointed out, in terms of what we learned from them, we have a lot of catching up to do on, on how to, to manage our own uh, f uh, dealings with foreign interference and cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to learn just as much from them uh, and listen to them in, in part of that relationship building. Okay, well, thank you for the time tonight, Lindsay Matheson, John McKay, Michael Chong, appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. And that is our program for tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again on Primetime Politics tomorrow.